The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. So I've been giving a series of talks most of this year on different ways that we can integrate this formal practice we do when we sit down, meditate, how we can integrate some of the principles of sitting practice with how we live our lives. And of course, that hopefully makes sense because the idea is uh, we want a practice that applies to the whole day, not just to the 30 minutes or the 45 minutes that we have to practice meditation. And I've been talking more recently about this part of practice that is called panya, or wisdom. And the general principle, what reveals wisdom, what develops wisdom, according to the way the Buddha taught, it's kind of nice because we don't have to go study in order to develop wisdom. The way that we develop wisdom is through clear seeing, or we develop a steady attention to the way things are. And it is that steady attention, that clear seeing, that transforms our, let's call it, wrong understanding into right understanding. So in a Buddhist system, ignorance simply means that we're misperceiving things. So it's not necessarily... We're not saying someone's stupid when we say they're ignorant in a Buddhist sense. We just It just means that we are in the habit of misperceiving our experience out of habit. And because we believe our habits, we trust them, it never occurs to us that we're misperceiving because we think the way we're perceiving is the way it is. Right? It never occurs to us. just like it never occurred to the people who thought the world was flat that the world was round. Or those of us who think the world is round, it never occurs to us it might be some other way. You know, it never occurred to people, you know, who thought of things in terms of atoms and molecules that actually that's just a simplistic model that doesn't capture the whole picture. And it keeps unfolding this way. So this is, you know, brings up another point, which is that part of wisdom is having a, a deepening sense that whatever system we're living under, whatever belief system we're living under, that it's just a skillful means. It's just something that we're temporarily using until we have a different understanding, and then we'll use that one. But we're not assuming, we should never assume that our understanding is some, like represents some absolute truth. It's just like a working hypothesis. This is how it is. And then, that way we're open to new experience and then to the reorganization of our understanding so that we're not attached. There's an article in the New York Times recently about glass. I didn't realize this before, but evidently, glass is a very interesting uh, phenomenon. It's actually considered to be a liquid, a very stiff liquid <laughs> and uh, but what's interesting is how the different 
I think chemists, I'm not sure exactly what field, studies glass, maybe physics and chemists, uh, physics and chemistry. But anyway, there's like fierce debates about what the nature of glass is. And, uh, and it's always this way when, you know, somebody comes up with a different way of looking at things. It's always really challenging to people who are attached to the previous views. So we've got this basic formula. If we let life in, our view will be transformed. And so, like over the last couple of months, I've been talking about the four Brahma Viharas. There's loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy. And the fourth is equanimity, which I'd like to begin to talk about tonight. And these qualities of the heart, you know, we think of these as heart qualities, but of course, they're just the um, expression of wisdom. So when the heart, when the mind gets close to suffering, if we really let suffering in, instead of trying to define it, instead of trying to explain to ourselves why that person is suffering or why I'm suffering, but just allow the heart to be touched, to be sensitive to poverty, to our friend's sadness because of a breakup, to our own feeling of humiliation because we failed at something, or our own feeling of vulnerability because all of a sudden, you know, we think we have Lyme disease or we, we feel sick and, you know, we've got so much to do. So if we just let that vulnerability touch the heart, then compassion arises. Compassion is what wisdom does when it meets suffering. Compassion is the expression of wisdom when the heart meets suffering. That's what wisdom looks like, that tender, caring, that, a willing, that willingness to include. And the same with appreciative joy. Like, if we allow ourselves to see, to open to beauty, to goodness, then what will follow is what we call mudita, or appreciative joy, or sympathetic joy, gladness. So, what we're getting a sense of then is, uh, um, it's like, all we have to do is let the experience in, be intimate, and then wisdom will reveal itself in all of its different flavors. And it's nice to know the four flavors the Buddha talked about, because then we can specifically uh, find ways to open to experience to express these different aspects of the heart or mind. So I talked over the months, last few months, about compassion and kindness and appreciative joy. So what exactly do we need to let in or open to to have equanimity be the natural expression of the mind, the wise mind and heart? So you can just reflect about that and maybe even reflect in your own experience. When have you seen, when have you felt a strong experience of equanimity arise? A kind of pervasive impartiality. But not an impartiality because you're not connected. Remember, wisdom only arises when the heart's really connected with things as they are. That's the proximate cause. 
And this is really important because it's easy to imitate wisdom. You know, like that we even have a cliche for it in our culture, you know, the ivory tower, right? Where somebody's off in some office and he or she thinks she knows everything about something because they've studied it, they've thought a lot about it, but they're disconnected. They're not actually, you know, they don't, they're not actually next to open to poverty, but yet they know all about it or don't, you know, they, they know about cancer, but they're kind of just studying you know, things in the microscope, but not maybe in a more holistic way. So the idea is in our own experience, in our own, to sort of uh, create the opportunity for the heart to be undefended and to see what the natural response is when the heart is undefended, when it's really open, when it's not creating some filter like, I understand. Even the thought I understand keeps us from understanding. Even in a simple way where you see your friend. If when your friend's walking up, you know, you're meeting your friend at the cafe, and as your friend's walking up, if we're really mindful, you might notice that a lot of interpretations arise in our minds when we're meeting our friends. You know, we see how he looks, and, you know, he's looking a particular way. So we, we just assume this is how it's going for him today. Or he's wearing those old jeans again. That means, you know... And, and then all of a sudden, we're not actually there with a friend. We're there with our thoughts about our friend, our interpretation, our concept of our friend. So to, to create the condition for equanimity to reveal itself, like to discover this capacity to be free of attachment, to be in the world without reactivity, then instead of like focusing on being intimate with suffering or with what's beautiful and good, uh, equanimity arises when uh, in a sense, we're, we're taking in the breadth of experience, like we're seeing the whole picture. And so what we're seeing when we take in the whole picture, instead of like focusing on this person's suffering, and there's nothing wrong with that, we're taking in the whole picture, you know, this person's suffering and that person's joy, you know, this person's success and that person's failure this person's happiness, that person's sadness, these people getting praised, these people getting blamed. And so the equanimity arises It's because it's seeing the big picture. And then when we see the big picture in any situation, then the result, the way we love the big picture is with equanimity. Just like the way we love a, a baby who's crying and, you know, in a bad place is with tender compassion, right? That's how we, that's how a nimble, free heart meets a baby that needs care. It becomes tender and caring. But when our heart meets the world as it is in this broader sense, this more vast, pervasive sense, the way we love this world 
is with equanimity. It's like if we're walking through the woods and we might see one huge, grand tree, you know, like a tree that's much older than the other trees and straight and just just uh, inspiring to see this old, solid tree. And it's easy for us to have like mudita for that tree. You know, may your success continue. May it increase. May it never end. You know, may you somehow manage to avoid the insects and avoid the lumberjacks and avoid the wind and the lightning. And may you continue to thrive in this place. But then, but then, you know, that's one gaze. There's nothing wrong. There's not. I'm not talking about good or bad here. Like this is a bad and here's a better. But then, if just naturally, sometimes the gaze will be very broad, and we'll see the whole forest, including the the land that's already been. What do they call it when they take all the trees down? Uh, clear cut. Yeah. So you see that. You see the field that's clear cut. You see the beautiful tree. You see the trees that have been blown over. The trees that have insects. The baby trees that are coming through. The undergrowth. You see the whole thing. And then instead of mudita for the big tree or compassion for the tree that's getting taken over by some fungus, when we see the whole picture, the way we love the whole picture is equanimity. It's a kind of... It is a, it is a form of love. All these flavors are both a flavor of love and wisdom, you know, because they're not different. So equanimity is like... Uh, we're seeing, I don't know if this word's a little loaded, but we're seeing the perfection in the whole. And so the response isn't to rejoice like we do with mudita, where there's joy coming up, or compassion, that tenderness that comes up when we see the suffering, but it's a stillness. Equanimity has that quality of stillness. Because that's how we love something that's already perfect that's already in balance is this what, what we offer that what we offer that which is already in balance is stillness the stillness of equanimity and it's not an indifference because we're really connected it only arises when we're really connected when the heart is open the mind is clear and then equanimity arises so this is kind of our our homework for the next few weeks Maybe through August I'll continue talking and we'll be discussing about, in the most practical, ordinary way, how do we cultivate equanimity in daily life? Both, I mean, also in our city practice, but especially in daily life. And it's like, it's like changing the, the kind of glasses we have on. Because normally our, we're seeing specific things, which is, again, it's totally fine and Obviously, we need to be able to do that to function in the world. You know, we need to actually see the kid that's in front of us. You know, instead of this sort of vast view where our child's crying is only one sound among many. (laughs) We need to be able to focus in, you know, and address the things we're specifically responsible for addressing. But we don't always have to have that view or that orientation. And whenever we don't need that orientation, we can practice this other orientation. 
Like sometimes when you're walking down the street to get somewhere, you actually have to pay attention to things. But a lot of times you don't need to pay attention to specific things. And you can just, in a sense, broaden out. So you're seeing the whole, I don't know if this is the right usage, but the whole cacophony, the whole dance of all things, sounds and visual and smells and maybe tastes and thoughts and sensations, body, tactile sensations, the whole dance of conditions, phenomena, coming and going. And what that does, if we can allow the heart, the mind, to be clear, intimate with that, then you'll begin to notice this spacious, still quality. It has a particular flavor. And you can give it a name. You can say, ah, equanimity is like this. Just like it's really good to get to know the experience of real compassion, not pity, feeling sorry for somebody. That's not compassion. Compassion, remember, is an authentic uh, intimacy with suffering, our suffering or the suffering of another, an undefendedness, an exposure to how it is, and then that natural response to it, that willingness, that wanting to respond, to care, to take care of. Regardless of whether the person gets better, there's just this, this sort of movement of the heart to respond. Or with joy, when we see something beautiful in our own life or outside of us, you know, we want to respond with joy. Your happiness makes me happy. Your success makes me happy. The health of this tree makes me happy. The squirrels finding an acorn, finding acorns, that makes me happy. So, uh, instead of uh, the tendency to imitate equanimity, you know, like we think we should be unshaken in the world, we should be calm, we shouldn't be upset, life shouldn't bother us, people's success should make us envious, or the bad news in the world, stock market goes down, shouldn't upset us. Instead of having that projection, like what we should be, how we should be, what we're learning to trust, and this is a, you know, this takes a long time to develop this kind of confidence, but little by little, we can, all of us, wherever we are in our lives, we can take little steps in this direction of developing confidence, not to become somebody who's this way, but to develop confidence in being less defended, more open, and discovering that the more open we are, the more the beautiful qualities are expressed in our lives. So that instead of trying to become beautiful, to become kind or compassionate or equanimous, we practice becoming more open, letting life, letting our actual life, our actual moment-to-moment experience in, being intimate, connecting and sustaining our attention with the way it is. And that begins to transform our heart. We just start noticing more wholesome qualities more often. The unwholesome qualities aren't going to go away anytime soon, but when the unwholesome qualities arise, we have some tools, right? We can meet the unwholesome qualities with awareness, with mindfulness. We open, be undefended. So when we're full of shame, we open to that shame. Well, that's opening to suffering. And what will be expressed? Well, compassion will arise. 
if we really open to our shame, then something really beautiful will arise. Compassion. If we open to our success, something really beautiful will arise. Instead of getting attached to our success, we can just be uh, completely open without any ideas, without trying to control it or make it last. We just open to what it's like to feel successful. And then joy will arise. We'll appreciate the success, knowing how everything's fragile. Success comes and goes, which is the heart will feel happy. And then, again, to, to kind of bring it back to the equanimity, it's, uh, it's like just relaxing the gaze we have in the world. So we're just seeing more and more. Like, even now when we're in this room, instead of looking at just me or hearing just my voice, because when you're just focused in on one thing, then we uh, will miss the insight that arises when we see that uh, basically it's the insight into con conditionality. How this moment is uh, this amazing web, intricate web of happening, causes and conditions, all this stuff happening. And how it all happens together in this moment, in any moment, but let's say this moment, if we open to it, if we really let this moment in, and you can just practice as I'm talking, if we really let it in, like all six sense gates, the five physical senses, and all the activity images in the mind, if we really let it in, it starts. you start noticing the flavor of how uh, it can't be other than it is. Like this is what I meant by perfection. It's like, it's perfect in the sense that given this amazing web of causes and conditions, which we could never calculate or understand, although we, but we understand there are causes and conditions because we can point to some, but we get a sense of the vastness of it. And as we open to the vastness of the causes and conditions that are making this moment the way it is, we, we start to feel in our bones that it can't be other than this. And that's, and that's perfect. And, and then that perfection, that seeing that it can't be other than this, is what, what uh, undermines the tendency to get attached or to be reactive. And so acceptance, this profound equanimity or acceptance or trust, it's not that we want this moment to be this way or we, you know, we're waiting for this moment to be this way, but that this moment is this way and it can't be other than it is given this vast, immeasurable ocean of causes and conditions. And see, it's just about cultivating, not, not, not literally the eyes, but we're cultivating the eyes, the mind or heart that can see this aspect of how it is. Just like we have to cultivate the eyes that can see what is beautiful in the world. Some of us are not very good at seeing what's beautiful in the world. But there are other people in this room who are very good at seeing what's beautiful. And there are some people who have more critical minds, you know, they can see it, they can see what's wrong. <laughs> but that's okay too, because they can also see 
suffering. You know, people who tend to be critical can also be very good at seeing suffering. That can be transformed into seeing the suffering, seeing dukkha and being touched by it. So we want to develop the capacity to see everything. So this it's kind of a nice symmetry here. We have seeing the beautiful, seeing the ugly, and seeing the neutral. You know, seeing the pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral. So equanimity arises when we see the neutrality of things. Right? That's what I meant about when we see the whole picture good and bad together, then what we're, the flavor is neutrality. And then the heart responds with equanimity. When the mind is focused, when what's right in front of us is suffering, then the heart responds with compassion. With when, with when what is in front of us is beautiful and good, wholesome, then the heart responds with joy. And all three of these are flavors of love. They're all beautiful emotions. Compassion is a beautiful healing emotion. Joy is a beautiful healing emotion. Equanimity is a beautiful healing emotion. So this is both a path to develop, like a path that we're on, but it's also, we could say, this is the fruit of developing this practice. So it's both how we develop the practice. You know, we cultivate the capacity to be open to what's beautiful, to be open to what's difficult, to be open to what's neutral. And we notice that as we do that, that we're, we're both noticing those three things and the heart is naturally, effortlessly, organically, spontaneously responding in these beautiful ways with equanimity, with appreciative joy, and with compassion in the world. Uh, there's this nice image I like that uh, a Buddhist monk uh, from England originally, Ajahn Amaral, he, he was out last November leading a retreat in Wisconsin. Um, some, I don't know if anybody in this room was able to go to that retreat. Several people from our community went. And he's a wonderful teacher. He's the abbot, the co-abbot of a monastery out in a California by Aguirre, where some of you have met Venerable Jyoti Palo, another monk who's been here a number of times. He spent most of his monastic career at Abayagiri, and uh, it's a really wonderful place by Ukiah, California. And Ajahn Amaro has this nice image of, uh, of equanimity, I think. I use it for equanimity. He talks about, like, when you're a passenger in a car, you know, especially when you're driving, like, through North Dakota, one of those places that not too much interesting happening and you can just change your understanding because normally when we're driving in the car we have the sense that here we are and we're moving through the space right isn't that normally the feeling we have but that's just one way of seeing it and so you can just change your view and just have the sense that you're sitting there and the space is coming towards you or if you're like me and you grew up with a family that had one of those station wagons where the back, back seat faced outward, so you could see everything going away from you, which is always fun to do. Not quite as exciting as seeing things come. 
It's more the impermanent side of things. And the, seeing the front side, sitting facing front, you see the creative, like, oh, 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 <laughs> there it goes. But in any case, whatever way you're facing, and of course, this is just a metaphor for life, because we're a little bit like that passenger, and life is the moments are tumbling forward, you know. This moment is now gone. Now it's this moment, and then it's the next. But this is a lot like stuff coming toward us when we're sitting in the car driving. And then instead of having this projection that I'm moving myself through my life, you know, I've just finally gotten myself through the 40s. Now i got to get myself through my 50s. <laughs> you know, and then when I get done with my 50s, I have to get through my 60s. Or, you know, now it's Wednesday and i got to get through Thursday and Friday before I get to Saturday. And it, it feels effortful. But with uh, this view, this vast view, this view of neutrality, of where we're seeing the whole picture, then it can be, we can basically see what one of the qualities, you know, I use that word perfection, one of the qualities that uh, makes that word right is we see how uh, everything's happening on its own. Like the unfolding of this moment, this vast happening, that it's lawful and it's all happening on its own. That it's incorrect it's an unnecessary projection to think that somehow I'm making it happen. Even even something as personal as me giving this talk. I mean, it, it'd be very appropriate from a conventional point of view for, for me while I'm up here giving this talk or for you while you're out there listening or whatever you're doing. <laughs> it'd be very appropriate for us to think that I'm doing this. You know, I'm here listening, trying to understand what the heck he's saying, or, you know, plan what I have to do tomorrow, or I'm here giving this talk. But we can relax that projection, right? So as I'm giving the talk, I can also have a sense that this talk is happening. Or as you're sitting there listening to this talk, you can also have a sense that I'm sitting here listening. You see how that's sort of bringing in space in the mind? Instead of a kind of being the somebody doing the something. It's like, uh, in terms of sensitivity or in terms of perception, we're kind of rootlets. Rootlets are going in all directions. And we're seeing things, we're seeing the moment from every possible perspective at once, not just from one. And what we notice is how the pervasive feeling or uh, insight is that it's all happening on its own doesn't mean that the talk isn't happening, and it doesn't mean that, that, that in order for the talk to happen, other things have to happen. But those other things that have to happen in order for the talk to happen, in order for this next word or words to come out, that's also happening on its own. And even, the, like even seeing how people are responding to the talk, and then how that, the emotions that come up because of that, and how then that affects what I say. Maybe I start speaking louder if you look sleepy, or maybe if you look really wrapped and into it, you know, then I maybe quiet down. 
and let things sink in. All of that also happens on its own. And it's really suffering if we keep feeling like we got to put ourselves in the middle of our life of somebody doing something all the time. And this is the real fruit of this ongoing reflection on equanimity that we're just getting started this week. I mean, I'm sure we've all been reflecting on equanimity because it's such a central theme in Buddhist practice for a long time. But now we can, because it's the topic, we can formally take it on both in our formal sits, but especially in our daily lives, just to reflect on equanimity and to just have different ways to initiate the reflection. So I've given you one. I'll give you a couple just to begin to work with and then more as the weeks go by. But the one I have given you already that you can just begin to play with and be creative with these reflections. And remember, reflections or contemplation It's a combination of mindfulness, of paying attention to things as they are, and skillful thinking. So you're using particular thoughts or images to help orient how you're paying attention, how you're opening to your experience. So in this case, you can bring that image of sitting in the passenger seat, you know, and everything's coming to you. And now you can then then just make the transition to your present moment experience and then just sort of relax into that experience that everything's just coming toward me. You know, everything's just arising moment by moment. This ceaseless unfolding of experience. Moment by moment. And And then more and more we just relax with that. And then even if you start to tighten up in some way, just see, just include that. So that, remember, the key with equanimity is it's this vast perspective. So we have to keep including. Because if we stop including whatever it is that's happening, we'll get kind of fixated on one particular part of what's happening. But we want to see the whole, we want to be like uh, opening in all directions. Because that promotes this, the heart's capacity to meet life with equanimity, with this profound, impartial, still, spacious flavor of love. And of course, there's no real joy or compassion or friendliness without equanimity. I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm not sure what teacher it was, has this wonderful line that uh, equanimity brings peace to love. Isn't that nice? Equanimity brings peace to love. Because otherwise, without equanimity, love can be quite agitating. Because <laughs> we, get, we get grippy around love. So we need the equanimity. Whatever particular flavor of the love we're talking about, compassion, Like, what's compassion without equanimity? We get really attached to outcomes, like this person being saved. But that's not compassion, that's attachment. So in order to be really present with suffering and responsive to suffering, we need equanimity. To really be a good friend, we need equanimity. To really rejoice and be happy with the beauty in the world, we need equanimity. 
Otherwise, inevitably, we'll get caught up in some kind of reactivity. And then the other thing I'll offer in terms of uh, bringing the practice home is um, just the traditional phrase that's uh, from the Vasudhi Marga, the Path of Purification, this great meditation manual written hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha. There was this Indian monk, um, Buddha Gosa, who Buddhism had sort of, some of the original teachings had died out in India. And so he went to Sri Lanka where the teachings had been better um, secured, the original teachings of the Buddha. But before the Sri Lankan monks and nuns would let him into their libraries of the, the teachings, the Pali Canon, they, they wanted him to prove that he was a good monk, that he knew what he was talking about. So he wrote the Vasudhimaga, this big manual of meditation. And um, in, in that manual, one of the sections is uh, like how to systematically develop these four qualities of heart, equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, and appreciative joy. And so he has specific phrases that can, in a sense, orient the mind in this way. And the, the equanimity phrase is, is a little bit challenging for people. You know, like the loving-kindness phrases make a lot of sense. May you be safe and protected. May you be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy and free from pain. May you live with ease and joy. I mean, nobody would argue with those phrases. And compassion phrases are, you know, I care about your suffering. May your suffering end. May you be free of it. An appreciative joy, may your joy continue, may it increase, may it never end. So these are some of the traditional phrases that we use. For equanimity, it's, it's translated something like, all beings are owners of their actions, heirs to their actions. Their happiness and unhappiness arises due to their actions, not due to my wishes for them. Right, so that's, that feels kind of cold. Or what do you mean? <laughs> but you have to understand that what we need to do is understand that the fact that I care about you or the fact that I care about me needs to be independent of how things are going to unfold for me or unfold for you. Because how my life unfolds now has to a large degree been set in motion by my intentional actions in the past. You know, I've created a certain amount of momentum in my mind by how I've behaved in the past, the kind of thoughts that I've obsessed on, right? Then that's what's alive in me now. So I can have a lot of compassion for what I've set in motion, but that doesn't change what I've set in motion what that does is it adds a new strand of momentum called compassion. But it doesn't change what's set in motion. That's still there right now, at least. So this is what we have to understand that we can really care, we can really appreciate the world, we can really be equanimous with the world, but the world is the world, meaning the nature of the world is to unfold lawfully due to what has happened previously. That's just the nature of the world. And 
this, when we reflect on those phrases, and you can find your own way into language, it's, I'll repeat it again. But you, then, then write it down so you can just, you know, chew on it. Like just notice how your mind reacts to it. And say it again, you know, and then notice how your mind reacts to it. And then say it and then look and see if it makes sense. So again, the, the phrase goes something like, all beings are owners of their actions. You can insert the word intentional actions, right? All beings are owners of their intentional actions. We are the heirs of our intentional actions. One's happiness, our happiness, or our unhappiness arises because of our intentional actions, not because of our wishes. So I'll leave it here so that we can check in with each other. We've got about 12 minutes. If you have any thoughts about the talk, any experiences that you'd like to share from your own practice that seem relevant, what comes to mind? I mean, it's, it's a classic question, and we should keep asking it, like in this setting, but especially we should see how that might make sense in the world. And, you know, it's the whole kind of free will versus determinism. I mean, if, there's, if it's all determined, then why the heck are we practicing? But if it's all... Uh, where's, the, where's the sort of... Uh, where can equanimity arise if our actions matter, right? Because then we want to really take control. And so part of it is a matter of our perspective. When we're living a conventional life, with, in, from a Buddhist point of view, with a conventional ignorant point of view, meaning we're seeing things from the point of view of self, we've got a self-centered orientation, there's me and the universe, then then from that point of view, our actions matter and have consequences. So, so then that's where we are, you know, that's where all of us are most of the time. We're living from the self-centered point of view. Every once in a while, uh, when the conditions are right, maybe that softens a little bit. We're not so much under that umbrella. But that's where we are most of the time. So that means that most of the time, we should appreciate that our actions have consequences and really get smart about what is skillful action, skillful thoughts, skillful words, and what are unskillful actions, unskillful thoughts, unskillful words. Get really good at that. The more we get really good at playing by the rules, like living in a way that leads to happiness and abandoning living in ways that lead to unhappiness. We get really good at that we start becoming more calm and more at ease in the world. And with that greater calm and ease, we begin to notice that all of this, trying to be good and avoid being bad, 
all of that is kind of happening on its own. Even the sense of Mark, who wants to avoid gossiping, because I know if I gossip, it sets in motion this thing in my heart, which later, you know, I'll bear the fruit of. Um, that even that's happening on its own. So, the the basic answer to your question, Colleen, is that we undertake the practice here first as a conventional human being wanting to be happy, learning the the rules for being happy, and playing by the rules. If I do this, happiness arises. If I do that, unhappiness arises. If we just start playing by the rules, that calms us down. The mind gets clear because there's just less agitation because we are playing by the rules. And the fruit of playing by the rules is we become more calm and happy. And when we're more calm and happy, we see more clearly. And what we see when we're more clear is all of this hard work is nature. It's not self. It's happening on its own. That's a that's an actual insight. I mean, we see it directly. It's not like a intellectual understanding. We just start to see it, and that's sort of what I was pointing to a little bit earlier about taking this vast view, because it's not easy to take that view to see everything together. You have to be pretty calm when we're hungry, you know, in in the metaphorical sense, or fearful. We don't see things with equanimity. We're, we're fixating. Like Ajahn Amaro, another great line Ajahn Amaro had, <laughs> our basic mode in life is we see things in terms of can we eat it, will it eat me, and can I mate with it? And everything else we tend to ignore. And so that those are that's an agitated way to go through the world where we're just seeing things in that way. Can I eat it, will it eat me, can it hurt me, can I mate with it? And... Uh, but when, when we're really uh, living skillfully, then we see more than those three things. We, see, we start to see everything and everything in between everything. And as we see the bigger picture with greater calmness, clarity, we begin to see that the whole effort of being Mark and being a good person so that I have good results in my life, all that is also nature. And it's also happening on its own. And... And then letting go doesn't mean we stop being Mark trying to be a good person. Letting go means we let that momentum of Mark who wants to be a good person, we let it be nature. It's already doing what it's doing. See, that's what I was saying before about the car. You know, we think we have to go through life. We think we have to walk up the stairs. But you watch yourself. Walking up the stairs just happens. Brushing the teeth happens. Saying things happens. See if you can stop your life from living itself. You know, you might sit on the couch, I mean, I'm going to wait for my life to live itself. Well, I guarantee if you sit there long enough, something will happen. <laughs> your life will happen. In fact, it's already happening. You're there determined to sit until your life happens. That's what's happening. And then you get frustrated with it and then something else will happen. But we have a very pervasive idea that I've got to do my life. That's a very, very strong idea that we keep projecting on our lives over and over again. And it's really, we can't, there's no way around that idea except to see 
that, uh, that idea is just an idea, that that projection is just a projection. And the best way, it's not the only way, but the best way is to develop a lot of calm and happiness. The more content you are in your life, the more insight you have. But the less contentment, less ease we have in our lives, the less insight we have. Because we're basically a desperate animal looking for shelter and food and somebody to mate with. And then, you know, that's agitating. But when we feel content, when we're at ease with whether we're single or married or in a partnership, and at ease with our shelter and at ease with the food that we have and at ease with the body that we have and the income or job that we have and content, then the mind isn't desperately trying to get those things. It just starts to notice, oh, so this is how it is. (laughs) And then insight just arises naturally. We just start to understand better. A couple minutes left if people have other thoughts. Paul? Three months ago, my brother lost his daughter in a house fire. Um, and I was talking with him last night. Um, and he he told me, he's been talking about this uh, for a while in his grief. He also has noticed the interconnected web of his life. Uh, And he likens it to walking in the woods when there's a dew, then what has been invisible, all of these webs, is visible. And so (coughs) this, uh, this event has made visible to him all of the things that connects him to those, uh, especially people uh, around him, in a, in a very profound way. And he he told me last night that in his prayers he he thanks God for April's life and for April's death. And I thought, what a beautiful equanimity that is. Not because. He feels he has to do this. It's his response to what he has experienced. Mm. And I thought it was uh, very, very powerful. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Huge events like that are, are so powerful. I mean, the truth of like losing your daughter in a fire or something like that. It's such a, a powerful dose of truth that doesn't fit usually with our preconceived ideas of things. So what it, it like a house of cards falls apart, our whole symbolic universe, our whole kind of conceptual reality doesn't make sense. It cannot make sense when something like that happens. And uh, either people can go insane or fall apart. Uh, you know, have an emotional breakdown. But if that doesn't happen, there can be a tremendous freedom then because they're, they're, they're like reborn. I mean, it's, I know it sounds like a cliche, but they're in the world, they're still sensitive, but they're free of that whole facade that we all are living with most of the time. 
and it's just a question of whether they rebuild it slowly or whether they have the, the, the understanding to kind of recognize what's happened and to uh, not be afraid of the space that's been opened up because it can be you, feel, you can feel different you know this is why it's nice to have a spiritual community because as things begin to open up it's nice to have other people who are on the path who understand what you're talking about and understand what can arise when we let go of the old and open to the new maybe that's a good place to end and we'll, we'll keep coming back to this particular topic for the next maybe three weeks maybe four weeks we'll see how much there is here but let's take, just take a few seconds and let go of the words it's nice to take a few breaths together opening up in all directions feeling the body hearing sounds noticing the mind as it is and letting it be our deepest aspiration to be fully at ease in this world just as it is fearless and loving intimate responsive and may we cultivate this presence for the benefit of all beings as a great gift to our own well-being and a great gift <coughs> to all beings without exception may we all be at ease free from suffering and free from the roots of suffering Thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, just a couple of announcements. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.